Good morning, everybody. Really great to see you and great to be here with you today. As Rachel said, I'm Brian Suter and my wife, Courtney, and uh, our kids are here this morning. We've been married for 14 years. We have a 12-year-old son and a, a nine-year-old daughter, and it has just been a joy to be on this church planting journey. I've been in ministry for about 20 years, and about two years ago, we started to feel this stirring. And in the midst of everything that was going on in the world, we just were following God's leading, that planting a church, there was no greater time to do that than then. And eventually through a set of circumstances, David, Sorn, and I got in contact with each other, and we have just been so blessed by partnering with you all. We truly feel like we're linking arms to see the gospel go forward into this world. We've benefited from coaching and encouragement in the ways of which you are doing church. We have a similar model where we gather for worship and then we break out into homes. We call them branch homes. You call them house groups. It's just an incredible gift to be um, here and to be with you on this day. I just got a text from one of my volunteers and David and I are wearing the same shirt. Uh, I thought that was funny too, and it was a good opportunity, but uh, I was here last July and shared a message, and we launched last June, and since we launched, it's just been an incredible, incredible reminder. I don't know about you, but I need a lot of reminders in my journey of faith, and the most pronounced reminder that I've received in this whole church planting journey is that God is faithful, amen? He is so faithful, We didn't know what would happen, but we've seen growth. The majority of our church is in branch homes, connecting with one another, following the model that we see in Acts 5.42, where the early believers met in the temple courts and then from house to house. We've celebrated baptisms, and people are using their gifts in ways that they never have before, and in a brand new way, coming alive in faith, and that's my favorite part. And I just want to invite you to pray for us. Uh, We're nine months in. We've got some things to decide into our future and just know that as you pray for us, we are praying for you. And I'll say it one more time. It's just a gift to be connected with you all. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5. And I want to invite you to grab your Bible that's underneath your chair um, and open it up to Matthew chapter 5. In the Bibles that are underneath your chair, it's going to be on page 659. And um, one of the things that changes our life the most is reading and applying God's word. And so if you don't have a Bible with you at home, we invite you to take this one and use it as a way to engage with what God has for you. At Branch Church, our focus over the last few months since September has been Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and it's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We find this context where Jesus is in Galilee, and he gives this amazing message to a crowd of people on a mountainside. And I think it's a timely message. It's always been timely. For 2,000 years, this word that Jesus gives to us has been applicable. But I have this increased sense that these words in this message that Jesus gave long ago are incredibly timely for us now. And I think they're timely for us this week as we prepare for Easter, as we reflect and remember Jesus' sacrifice, but also as we go and proclaim and invite and help people to know this life that we found in Jesus and as we're on mission. And as it relates to the Sermon on the Mount, one of the main impressions that I felt as we've gone through it, we're taking our time, um, is to not rush. Because there's so much here. It's life-changing. Jesus' teaching here also is not easy. It's got weight to it. And his word, like the whole of God's word, the counsel of God's word, will demand something of us as we follow him. But it's essential. And so what I want to do is start by reading the first two verses in Matthew 5. I love how David does this. Big number 5. Little numbers 1 and 2. That's where we'll be. Here's what it says. 
Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. I just want to offer some opening ideas before we get to the passage that we're going to focus on. This context is important. What we see is the crowds. There was a great multitude that was following after Jesus. They, he's early in his ministry. He's in the northern part of, uh, of Judea in Galilee. They're seeing his miracles. They're hearing his teaching, and they're finding life, and people are getting curious. Here's the reminder. Jesus makes people curious. He draws. He brings people to himself when we lift up his name. And this area is beautiful. It overlooks the Sea of Galilee. And it says he sat down. Now, that's not logistical. Because when rabbis sat down, something amazing was about to happen. They were sitting down, and they were about to teach. And then the word said the disciples came to him. I also want to draw out just some context. These words that Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount are for the disciple of Jesus primarily. Um, this is not necessarily a message that Jesus gives to, to, like, um, to draw the masses. This is a word for the disciples, but it's also a word for those who have ears to hear. We hear that throughout the scripture, if you have ears to hear. And so I just want to say, wherever you're at on your journey of faith right now, maybe some of you are in this room and you've been drawn, you've seen Renovation Church, it's a new church, you've been drawn into this place, and you're in a place where you're curious and trying to figure out what faith in Jesus looks like. I just want to say that I'm really glad that you're here. And I also believe that this word that Jesus gave can speak to you and change your life even this very morning. But really, this is about discipleship. Last thing I'll say for context It says, and he began to teach them. Other translations of the Bible say he opened his mouth. Why would the Bible say that? I just want to draw out, this isn't logistics, like he spoke. When the word says he opened his mouth, what it was intending was this is a preface for the most weighty of teachings from a rabbi, from one like Jesus who's a teacher. It was a solemn and grave and dignified utterance. And the bottom line is this. This is a major moment of Jesus' ministry. With this phrase, those who were listening would know that what was about to be communicated was of utmost importance for them. This is the greatest sermon ever given by the most brilliant one to ever walk the face of the earth. Jesus, Son of God, Savior of the world, and can be Lord of your heart today. And that's how we listen. Last thing I'll say before we jump into the verses, I think it's for such a time as this. I've already mentioned that, but I was reminded this last fall through a book I read. I read an autobiography on uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Big old book. I kind of got a little grief from my family, like that's a really big book. (laughs) But in it, it highlights the life of uh, Bonhoeffer, who was a German theologian, pastor in World War II, and eventually um, would be executed at a concentration camp 77 years ago yesterday. And he wrote some words about the Sermon on the Mount that I think gives us a a little bit of a level set. He said this, The restoration of the church must surely depend on a new kind of monasticism. Now that's a big word to describe practice of faith, discipleship to Jesus, apprenticeship to Jesus, which has nothing in common with the old life but a new life of uncompromising discipleship. Following Christ according to the Sermon on the Mount. I believe that the time has come to gather together people to do this. Now, think about what the world was like at that time. Kind of feels like the world is today, doesn't it? 
Nothing's really changed. The world has always been a dark place. Evil has always been present, sometimes more prevalent than others. But there's weight to it right now. As we hear these words, that these are not just words to store up in knowledge. These are words to practice together. And so as we read it as a church body today, but also for those of you who are in house groups, as you're digging into it this week, think about what you've learned in order that you can obey and follow after Jesus through this way. Now, let's go to verse 13. I'll read this for us. Follow along with me in your Bibles. It says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Salt and light. These are distinctive elements that have a strong influence on their surroundings. And in using these metaphors, Jesus does a few things for us. First of all, he gives us an identity declaration of who we are in him that follows with a command. And I want us to hear both and grapple with both and think about what it means to apply with both. Here's the message simply put. You have been declared salt and light by Jesus, son of God. Stay salty and let your light shine. Simply put. Now, dig in a little bit deeper. Here's the first identity declaration that Jesus gives. You are the salt of the earth. What a powerful thing to be called by Jesus. You are the salt of the earth. Now, think about salt for just a minute. At Branch Church, we have kids grades one and above with us in the worship service, and so oftentimes I'll talk to them. And so I just pose the question, raise your hand if you like salty things. Hand goes up. You can do this too. This is fun. Raise your hand if you like salty things. Hand goes up. Raise your, things if, raise your hand if you like sweet things. I noticed at Branch in here, too, that the hand stayed raised. I think a good night is chips and salsa ended with ice cream, personally. But the import, important thing that we need to draw out is what the purpose of salt was back in that day. Because right now we think about salt as seasoning. Like if a food is a little bland, we throw some salt on it. But in Jesus' day, the primary use for salt was for preservation. It was to preserve something, to keep food or other goods from becoming spoiled or corrupt. Second thing I'll say about salt is that it was really important. In um, the Roman culture, oftentimes Rome paid their soldiers with salt. Be interesting, you show up to work tomorrow and your boss gives you a bag of Morton. Thank you for being here. (laughs) That's actually where the phrase, he wasn't worth his salt, comes from. So if a Roman soldier wasn't holding up his end of the bargain, he wasn't worth his salt. It's just kind of interesting. Jesus is saying salt is important, and you are important as a seasoning and preservation agent. So you are the salt of the earth. Here's the command. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose your saltiness. So if we're listening, we're kind of hearing Jesus be a little salty about staying salty. And he's drawing us in. He doesn't come out and directly say it, but it can be inferred based on the uselessness of non-salty salt. We hear Jesus say it's, um, it's, it's, it's useless, and essentially it's to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. In Luke's gospel, um, he says that it's not even useful for the manure pile. 
So he's giving a really strong challenge here. Direct. Don't lose your saltiness. We have to heed Jesus' warning. How does salt lose its saltiness? I found a couple ways. First, salt loses its saltiness when it's diluted. In other words, when you add water to it, it becomes a little less punchy. But salt also loses its saltiness in the presence of impurities when other agents are there. And I think there's a parallel for us in faith. What are the impurities? What is the um, dilution that will cause us to lose our saltiness? I think first, just watering down the gospel, being easy with the message. No, Jesus has a really high bar. And he says, come and pick up your cross. Come and die in order that you may live. But there's a couple things I want to draw out that I think are with the rest of the word of God. Here's one thing that causes us to lose our saltiness. It's unrepentant sin. Now, I want you to notice that I said unrepentant because here's the truth. We all sin. We all do. I do, you do, we all do. Sin is part of the human experience. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, fallen short of God's standard. And left unto ourselves, here's the truth, left unto ourselves without intervention, we are separated from God for all of eternity. But here's the good news. Jesus comes. And as we remember this week, he steps in to pay the penalty that we could not pay on our own to die on the cross, and then he's resurrected to defeat the grave and sin and death. Glory to God. That is good news. And he gives us a gift. So when we're headed towards our sin and we experience the brokenness of our sin, we hear the nudge of Jesus and we turn around and repent. We turn 180 degrees toward him and we are made new. Here's what the word says, 1 John 1, verses 9 through 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that good news? I hope it is for you today. If we confess our sins, he'll purify us from all of our unrighteousness. But if we have sinned, um, sorry, if we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Here's a couple applications. It's so important for us to search our hearts. The psalm says, search my heart, O God. And I just wonder, is there anything that you've not brought before Jesus in confession? Lord, forgive me for I've sinned. He's ready and eager to forgive you. I think another application is this. I wonder if you know, some in this room have not yet crossed that line of decision um, from death to life, where ultimately for a big moment in your life, you just choose that you're going to follow after Jesus. He's the one that's pulled you here. You're not here by accident. And he's the one that wants to forgive you. So those things that cause shame, that make your face warm when you think about them, those things that, have, that you've done that are wrong, that guilt, that pain, that brokenness. He wants to redeem that. He wants to forgive you for that. And he wants to provide you with a whole new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. A whole new you. The old is gone, the word says. All of that has been left behind and the new has come. And so I want to say to you, if that message is resonating with you today, and if you've not crossed that line yet, if you've not opened up your heart to this Jesus who loves you more than you can ever fathom, before the end of our gathering, I want to invite you to pray those, uh, a prayer 
that can reflect your heart because the word says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And so let God speak to you in that. But sin, unconfessed and unrepentant, dulls our spiritual senses and the impact that the Spirit wants to make through us. Another way that we uh, lose our sense of saltiness with impurities is uh, through false teaching. Here's what I want to say. It's probably something that we all know. We live in a moment of human history where we have more access to information than anyone else who has ever walked this earth has. And it greets you when you first wake up in the morning. You open up your phone and immediately whatever you're looking at or whatever you're ingesting, whatever you're taking in, brings you somewhere. And I want to share this. The things that we absorb, the things that we hear in the news, things that we see on our phones, whatever it might be, that information that comes our way is not neutral. It's not neutral. It's guiding you in ways that you may know, in ways that probably you don't know. And the context is this. There's a lot that comes our direction. There's a lot that can cause us to drift. There's a lot of stuff that we think is right, but unchecked, it will get into our souls and it will take away our saltiness. Here's uh, what the word says. It's nothing new for the follower of Jesus. Second Timothy 4, 3-4 says this. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine, in other words, right belief. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. The word is so honest and real. They will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myth. So I think it's really important. Are the things that we're absorbing and we're tempted to believe, is that aligned? Is that aligned with who God is, his word? right doctrine, right belief. We've got to examine ourselves all the time. Now, so what do we do to retain our saltiness? I just want to give you a few ideas, the first of which is to remove our impurities. But in saying that, I want to ask, is it possible for us to remove our impurities? It's not. We can't do that on our own. The good news of the gospel is that there is nothing that we can do on our own to be made right with God and have that impurity removed. The great news of the gospel is it's a free gift given to us from God himself, this savior of the world and the savior of our souls comes to make us new. And all we need to do again, as the word says, is just confess our sin and we're forgiven. And he gives us a whole um, refreshed way. But also be aware, ask God, is there anything in me that I've not examined that will lead me astray? Another idea, secondly, is to soak in truth. Again, in an information, overwhelming, saturated culture that we live in, let's go to the truth. Let's go to the truth. If you don't have a Bible at home, again, take this one with you. The other thing that uh, is available for you in the lobby is a 100 chapters in 100 days Bible reading plan. We've borrowed that, by the way, and we're using it as a church, and it's just been so meaningful. If you don't have that, if you're not engaging at the Word, start there after the church, and you'll soak in truth. Let me give you an example um, humor me for a couple moments. A couple years ago, we bought a used, used pickup truck. Let me emphasize the word used. <laughs> Always wanted to drive a pickup. Here we are, we have it. And one of the things that I recognized when I got into the cab of this pickup is that it smelled. Not great. <laughs> and it smelled. And oftentimes, sometimes when we go over to friends' homes that have dogs, the dogs like always go smell the cab. And it makes me wonder what happened in this thing that like dogs are obsessed with it and it smells funky. 
So I needed a solution, and I didn't want to go get one of those gas station, like, pine trees. And so I did a little research, and this is not a commercial, it's a metaphor. I found this air freshener that this, this is this little light piece of wood that essentially what you do is put it in a Ziploc bag and drop these oil drops onto it, and it soaks overnight. And then when you pull it out of the bag, you put it in your car, and suddenly your car smells a lot better. My truck doesn't smell as bad. And here's the point that I want to make. That air freshener emanates what it's soaked in. And the same is true of our souls. We behave out of that which we soak ourselves in. So are you soaking yourself in truth? Or are you soaking yourself in lies of the world? Maybe a little bit of both. Soak yourself in truth. And then third, engage. Salt is worthless unless it's used, right? So engage. This week, engage. This is a perfect week for us to engage. And I just want to ask you, in what context or area of your life could you use some preservation right now? Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your neighborhood. Maybe it's your workplace. There's just brokenness there that Jesus wants to do something about through you. Go to preserve. Now, if I might just give one more kind of guardrail. Jesus calls us the salt of the earth so that we can preserve, not burn. And there's a difference. After college, some friends and I went down to Florida on vacation like 20 years ago, and we got jet skis, and we went around in the ocean, and I didn't wear sunglasses that day, which was a huge mistake because I was like the caboose behind everybody else. And so all this salt water was spraying, and I didn't know it. And I got out of the, out of the jet ski that day and into the car. I couldn't open my eyes for three hours. They hurt so badly because salt can burn if it's too much. Here's the point. God will give you wisdom in the context that you go in faithful to him to be salt, to preserve that relationship, that workplace, that neighborhood. He'll give you wisdom of how to apply it and just how to reflect his goodness into that. And the point is this, preserve, don't burn. Now, second identity declaration. You are the light of the world. With your Bible still open, I want to read this verse again. Here's what it says. You are the light of the world. A town on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What a stunning declaration. You are the light of the world. Who would have the authority to call us that? Well, only the light of the world himself. It's important that we remember who the light of the world really is. And John 8, 12 tells us, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have, have the light of life. You are not the light itself. Jesus is the light of the world, and all we do is reflect him into this dark world. So, you are the light of the world. Here's the command. Let your light shine. Let your light shine how? Dimly? No. Let your light shine brightly before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I mean, how can you read this and talk about this without thinking about that childhood song that we learned? This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. This is the light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Now, when I shared this with Branch Church, they started to sing. No pressure. <laughs> it's such a simple song, but with such profound meaning. Hide it under a bushel? No. I'm going to let it shine. 
Houses in ancient Israel were very dark, usually with only one small window. And this light that Jesus is referring to uh, was like a, a, a boat-like oil-filled object with a wick floating in it. And it was really hard to get lit. Why? Because there weren't matches in that day. And so if a homeowner lit that lamp, they didn't want to blow it out when they left the house because it was that much harder to light again. And so they would take something that I'm imagining was like flame resistant, (laughs) a basket, a bushel or something, and cover that lamp when they left the house. But what happened to the house when they covered that lamp? It went dark. It went dark because that light was hidden. Jesus is saying strongly, let your light shine. Now here's how I want us to apply this. I'm guessing for some, because I wrestle with this myself, For some of us, it's a little too easy to hide our light in the darkness. We might feel intimidated. We might feel like we don't know enough about God or about faith or about the gospel to shine. We might feel like we don't want to put ourselves out there because what's the reaction going to be? When you share your worldview that Jesus is the Lord of, of this world and it has invited others to surrender and bow a knee, That may not be popular in the contexts that you're in. And so as a result, you might shrink back a little bit. We might be nervous. And it's important for us to identify what it is. For me, I want to be liked. Anybody else out there like that? So I don't want to create offense, but the the reality is, is that can't get in the way of us being bold because here's what 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 7 says. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. In other translations, it says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us power. He's given us love, and he's given us self-discipline. And as a result of just us dying to ourselves, picking up our cross, we've got nothing to lose. We've got nothing to lose. We've just got everything to gain. Faith is not a quiet, keep it to yourself thing. It's meant to be lived. It's meant to be shared. It's meant to be proclaimed. Because when we don't, our faith just grows a little bit more dimly. It survives by being out in the open, our internal discipleship of Jesus. In one of the commentaries that I read, it quotes an unattributed writer with a powerful statement. It says, there can be no secret discipleship. Either the secret destroys the discipleship or the discipleship destroys the secret. We're called to go forth in boldness. So let your light shine. Let your light shine before people so that as a result, they don't think we're great, but they look at God and they give praise to our Father in heaven. Now, boldness, boldness is what we're called to be about. And in fact, in this moment that we worship, this is... Palm Sunday. This is the day that we recognize in the midst of Holy Week that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And Jesus had been bobbing and weaving, declaring his identity in some contexts, keeping it quiet in others because he knew that the time had not come. But when, as you heard a few weeks ago, he rode into Jerusalem on this donkey, he said, it's time. And the clock started ticking and he would be dead soon. He knew it. But Jesus walked in. And he let his light shine. And I read this morning in the Gospel of Luke that when he was riding on that donkey and the crowds of his followers were saying, Hosanna, 
Hosanna to the king. They were praising him. The Pharisees came to Jesus and told Jesus to rebuke his disciples. In other words, tell them to be quiet. Do you know what Jesus said? He said, if they are quiet, the rocks are going to cry out. The rocks are going to cry out. This week, let's not let the rocks cry on our behalf. Let's boldly declare by a number of different ways who Jesus is. He is God. He is Son of God. He is the Savior of the world and the Savior of our souls. And that might come through an invitation for someone in your life, a family member, a friend, a neighbor, to worship with you here at Renovation on Easter weekend, maybe to do the egg hunt, whatever it might be. Just speak, and God will give you wisdom of how to invite someone to know this God, to step forward, to maintain our saltiness, and to let our light shine. Don't forget Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world as you reflect just simply who he is into this world. It's a dark world right now. We know that. And what Jesus is asking for us to do in a way that demands trust of him is to step into this darkness and be who he's called us to be. So engage, don't shrink back, go into the context that he's called you, listen to him for wisdom and step forward to be salty, to preserve and to shine the light of Jesus into the darkness around you and he's gonna use you and us in a powerful way. Now, I think a message like this needs prayer. Would you agree? In a week like this, in a context like this, in relationships like what we have, it needs prayer. And so I want to pray just for us, for me, for you, for our churches, that we would heed Jesus' call here today. But I also just want to go back to something that I mentioned before. You may be here, and really, you've been tugged by Jesus. He's been pulling at your heart, and that's not by accident. The Holy Spirit's working. And Jesus is pursuing you with his incredibly powerful and overwhelming love, a love so great that we can't even fathom it. And if that's you, and if you felt that nudging, and you've not yet crossed that line to trust Jesus with all of your life, I just want to invite you to do that here this morning, to not let this opportunity go by, to not let leave this church without surrendering. It's not me who's doing this work. I believe it's God if he's nudging your heart. And so all it simply means is that you open your heart up and reflect words out of your heart, as Romans says, that if we believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved and you'll be a new creation. And so what I want to do is invite you to pray that prayer. I'll lead you in it. And if that's you, I'll just invite you to pray in just a moment and then we'll pray together and our band will come. So I'd love for us all just to close our eyes, bow our heads, and just for a brief moment, listen to God and what he's telling us. You are God with us, Jesus. You're here. So Holy Spirit, be working in this moment. Help us to hear from you. Friends, if you feel like this is the day that you've been nudged to say yes to the Savior, the one who loves your soul, with your head bowed, eyes closed, I just want to invite you to raise your hand out of boldness. If that's you, if you're ready to receive Jesus as your Lord, just raise your hand out of boldness that I may see you. Amen. Amen. Anyone else? 
hear the voice of Jesus drawing you. Say yes today. Just raise your hand. Amen. For those who had their hands raised, just pray this prayer with me. God, I acknowledge that I'm broken and sinful. And I believe that you have come, Jesus, to save me. And I surrender my life to you right now. I commit to following you all the days of my life. Thank you for saving me. And for all of us, Lord, we just bend a knee and we bow our hearts out of humility to know that it's not us that's working in this world, it's you through us. And we thank you for counting us um, just worthy to be used by you in this world that needs you so badly. So in whatever way that you've called us, would you do the work through us to preserve and to shine light into dark places? This is a week. This is an amazing week where we remember you and your sacrifice and your death on the cross and your resurrection to defeat the grave and sin and death. And so we thank you. So prepare our hearts. Help us to go forward with boldness. And may you change this world through us. Let it be so. In Jesus' name, amen. So friends, if you prayed that prayer here this morning, I'm just going to invite you to meet me um, and another follow-up volunteer in the lobby. And we'd love to talk to you about next steps. And when our team begins to lead us in the last worship song, I just invite you to go out there and I'll meet you out there.